Good morning, Ashley. <laughs> uh, to, this morning we're going to be picking back up in Genesis uh, chapter 21. Uh, last time we were in Genesis, which was quite a while ago, uh, we skipped over this section uh, to let the message focus on the birth and potential sacrifice of uh, Isaac. Uh, we saw Abraham really become a father of faith with his immediate and deep obedience to take Isaac to the mountain. Um, and so we had read the beginning of this chapter, the first uh, uh, seven verses about him being born, and then we skipped ahead into chapter 22, uh, which uh, next time we'll be skipping over that. But today we're going to go back and fill in uh, an important part. How do I know it's important? Well, it's in the Bible, and there's only a certain number of pages and a certain number of words. You might think there's a lot of words and a lot of pages, but considering all that God is and how long time has been, it's really concise. And it really only tells us what we need to know and what's important. And today we're going to find out something that's very important. Uh, and I think that impacts uh, all of history. Um, something that is continuing uh, on to this very day, uh, December 2nd, 2018. Uh, but just a refresher, and I needed this myself. I went back and looked some of the older notes just to make sure I wasn't completely off. Uh, but we saw the, God, the call of Abram to this point. Uh, when he was named Abram, uh, God calls and promises him to leave his homeland, uh, but he waited. He ended up uh, stopping for a while, waiting for his dad to die. He took his family and possessions with him. Remember, he brought Lot, and he wasn't supposed to bring Lot. We see how that plays out uh, in multiple ways, but God speaks to him at the tree, the terebinth trees in Mamre. Uh, I, he keeps passing through the promised land to get back to the prosperous land. Remember, he goes down to Egypt a couple times, and the whole a fiasco down there with lying to Pharaoh, and thankfully God made Pharaoh a gracious man to not uh, uh, give Abram what he deserved. Uh, you know, uh, God intervenes at that point. In fact, even, even Pharaoh blesses Abram as he departs. Uh, God promises again, and Abraham, Abraham's heart begins to turn to call on the name of the Lord. He had heard these things, he had believed them, he had left, but you can tell that he's been dragging his feet. You can tell that his life is not a full life of faith yet. Um, and that, that's, that's good to know because he's called the father of faith in the Bible. Uh, sometimes we look at him as this perfect man and we think, oh, I can never have that kind of faith. But I think we look at his life in reality, we go, oh, maybe I do have that kind of faith. It takes a while to grow and takes a little while for us uh, to, to stand up on, like a, a shaky fawn learning to get its feet. But God promises again and Abraham risks his life and rescues Lot. Remember the guy he wasn't supposed to bring, and he blesses God instead of the world when he gives tithes to Melchizedek. Uh, Abraham looks to God for a blessing in that situation instead of the king of Sodom, and God reminds him of the promise uh, to have an heir. Sarai and Abram wait, but they give up on waiting, and they get themselves and those around them into a mess, which we're going to look at some of the deeper fruit of today. However, God is always faithful, and he rescues and blesses them despite the mess that they made. He helps them clean it up, some, so to speak. But we see no matter how much cleaning we do, it's still a matter of heart of man as we look at God and man in this. And we see that there's still deep-seated problems, deep-seated roots that go um, and haven't been dealt with and end up having to be dealt with in a harsh way. But again, this is why our study in Genesis is called Genesis, God and man, or God and mankind. Uh, today we might even say it's God and woman in part of it. But it's a look at the reality of the relationship between God and man throughout the history of Genesis. Uh, and ultimately, I think that gives us a look at the picture of God and man throughout the history of history. Because these are real people, and this is the real God. And to be truthful, he's really involved personally in their lives. And a lot of times we don't think he is. We think he's some distant God. And I think a lot of people miss that in the Bible, that God is not a distant God. He's a near God. And he'll be involved in our lives, and he is, even to the extent where uh, we're not paying attention to him. We know that the Holy Spirit goes out to convict of uh, judgment and sin and righteousness. And that's God working in people's lives, whether they like it or not, or whether they bow to it or not. He's still working in their lives. But man, oh man, could he not, would he not work more in our lives if we would just let him? And Father, this morning, we want you to work in our lives. We want you to continue to work. We need you to have your perfect way in us, God. We are dirt and we don't know anything. And yet, God, you've put us together and breathed on us to bring us life. And you desire to have a relationship with us. So, God, be close to us, we pray. Say, if we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. And I think somehow it's vice versa, God. But we love you and trust you. Please speak these things out of your word. In Jesus' name.
Amen. I'm going to sip of water here, and we're going to pick it up in Genesis 21. Uh, we're actually going to step back to verse 8, and uh, I believe you read that last time, but we're going to start 8 through 13. So Genesis 21, verse 8, says, So the child grew, that's Isaac, and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of, her, of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. Therefore she said to Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Uh, talking about Ishmael. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman, because he is your seed. <coughs> Excuse me. We see in verse 8 that Isaac was weaned. He was probably a few years old, a toddler, no longer a little baby. You know, he's a big boy like we talk to our kids when they get to reach three or four. They start to become big boys and big girls. And that's probably the age he was here. There's some discourse on, you know, it could be as up to age 12, but I think, you know, uh, uh, practically most people wean their kids at a toddler age. Um, but it made me think of this verse, 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, I think this is going to apply to today's uh, message, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if you indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know, if you've been weaning yourself off the scriptures purposely or not, and you realize that your time has just been weaning and waning, come back to them. Feed the desire, no matter how little it is, and it will grow again. Uh, just as if you're tired and, you, and you're sick or, and you begin to eat more and you start getting your appetite back, you begin to eat more and more, you get healthier and healthier. We see here uh, Ishmael is scoffing. And that word scoffing is to laugh, mock, or play. Um, you know, Isaac was being weaned and there was a great feast. And what does Ishmael do? He scoffs. Uh, it's not exactly like it, but it does remind me in some ways of the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, uh, where the brother who had been a good boy his whole life uh, is home and he gets angry that there's a party for his brother who had been a bad kid and taken his inheritance and, and was just wasting his life. Um, you know, imagine he was ran away and was a drug addict or an alcoholic and he comes back and there's a big party for him and his other brother was a straight A student and never did anything wrong or got in trouble with the law. It's not quite the same though, but it makes me consider it because I know that there's pictures throughout the Bible of similar things. But Ishmael was quite a bit older uh, than Isaac, uh, roughly probably 13 years older. You know, uh, it was quite a while between the time when uh, Abraham and Sarah had were granted the promise of a son. They took it in their own hands, and then it was still quite some time before Isaac was actually born. Uh, so perhaps he's a teenage boy here, you know, perhaps 16 at the time. If Isaac is three and they're 13 years apart, you know, that would be 16. Even my math skills can handle that. Um, you know, but I imagine anywhere in that range of years he would be. Um, and you know what teenage boys are like. Uh, my mom, as you know, sent my middle school yearbooks back. And I think about my high school yearbooks, which I've thrown out and no longer have, thankfully, because you know what teenage boys are like, and I don't want any record of those things that are written, and I think about the kids with uh, the internet today and all the things that they write in their high school years, and it will never go away and come up on some job interview when they're 50, if they don't delete it. But sincerely, though, he, if he's 16 and Isaac is three, he's scoffing at his baby brother, having a party. One thing, if he was 16, the other one was 14, or they were closer in age, like, you know, seven and five, and they were, you know, bickering. But man, Ishmael, he's really kind of uh, being kind of lousy here. He's, it's not just jealousy. It's, this is a little kid. I mean, it's one thing, he's like a bully. It's one thing to uh, have a fight with a sibling, but when they're that much younger than you, I mean, I'm 11 years younger than my sister and 14 years younger than my brother. Yeah, we've all had our spats at times, but it was always when I was older, when I was uh, an adult, so to speak, and could handle myself. But when I was a little kid, my brother and sister would fight, but they would never fight with me because I was their little brother. 
Why, what reason in the world do they have to fight with me? Even if I, they used to joke that I could get away with murder and they couldn't, they never would have done this at a birthday party for me or any of that nature. Because it's, honestly, it's, it's sick. There's something deeply wrong uh, in the heart of Ishmael and really in the family at this point for this sort of thing to happen. happen. It's obviously uh, a family dynamic that's gone sour. Um, you know, but I, I don't know that there was a party at Ishmael's weaning. I think it's become super clear at this point to Ishmael that Isaac really is the favorite son. I'm sure he and Abram, Abraham spent time together, um, but this is, this is messed up. You know, it's more than jealousy or resentment or not getting the attention he wants, you know. I think it's obvious to him that he's just the son of a servant here, that he's not, uh, even though his dad is Abraham, the owner of all these guys and has servants and land and tents and wealth and is known by kings and has been all around, he doesn't have the same privilege as a son. Even though he's the firstborn, he's treated like a servant, perhaps. And I'm sure by age 13 or 16, he's figured out that it's not an ideal situation. He's figured out that his mom and dad, this isn't normal. This isn't good. You know, as, as I was napping yesterday, I started watching that movie Elf or whatever. But in the beginning, he's huge. He's a human and he's in Elfland where everyone's small. And he doesn't realize that he's not an elf. And he overhears two of the elves talking like they feel bad for him because he hasn't figured it out by now, you know. <laughs> and like his whole world gets shocked. Like, wait a minute. And he begins thinking back at all the years about how like the clothes and the shoes didn't fit. They had to make special stuff for him. And he's not as fast as making toys as the other elves. I have to wonder, you know, at some, what point did Ishmael wake up and realize, you know, mm, it's not quite all, it, uh, all, it, all it's cracked up to be. He's seen Isaac running around the house, being favored, having more toys maybe, maybe more time with Abram. His mom is still the servant of Isaac's mom. There's obviously conflict between his mom and Sarah, the, mo the lady of the house. Uh, it's under the surface perhaps. Maybe it's not so overt. Maybe you know that feeling, especially around this time of year at family gatherings. Maybe there's been a year or two or maybe they've all been this way where there's just something under the surface that's not being said and you know everyone's walking on eggshells and being real careful not to say anything and then whoop it comes up and then whew, it boils over uh, and that's what happens when it's not dealt, dealt with it will quickly bubble to the surface and that's what happens here uh, but we know that Isaac is son of the promise God promised and Ishmael is called the son of the flesh because Sarah and Abraham tried to make God's promise happen in their own way in their own thinking and a decade too early. It wasn't God's time. It wasn't God's way. And we see that there's deep consequence for that, for all of history. Because this promise was so big. This promise was so important. It can only come about in one way. And it's severely tragic. But the children always bear the hardest consequences of what the parents do wrong. And other adults in their lives as well. Whether it be divorce, drug or alcohol abuse working too much, fighting, physical abuse, bad habits passed down, even little things like that, whatever it is, it really affects the children. It affects the children. It affects Ishmael here. Ishmael didn't do anything to deserve this. He was just born. He's just a little boy. It's just like any other little boy, except he's born into a family with major problems. And, man, can some of us relate to that, I think. Sarah, though, was fed up. It was 16 years of this, 17 if you count the, you know, Ishmael being in the womb. There's already strife and resentment. We see that in uh, chapter 16, verse 4, between her and uh, Hagar. But a decade and a half later, there's still all of this going on. It's festered. It's gotten worse. Think about that. A family problem that's been going on for 16 years. It's under the same roof. You're facing it every day. It's not dealt with. There's hatred. There's strife. Abraham's kind of got two wives. Or one's his real wife and the other one's just a servant. He's got two sons running around. It's Think about all the other people that see it and then there's awkwardness at meals or they're doing something. It's just, think about all that. And Sarah sees this happen. She sees Ishmael, the son of the bond woman making fun of her son, the promised son, that she can have a baby for 90 years, and she has this baby, and he's being weaned, and he's 16, and he's making fun of him and mocking him, and it's not just teasing. Get him out. Get her out, Abram. I keep calling him Abraham. I told you that months ago that I would mess that up. But get him out. And this isn't like they live in the suburbs where she can go stay at the neighbor's house or at friends or family or go on welfare. It's very rural. It's wilderness. 
And, you know, we live in Montana, and some would call this wilderness, and yet I still kind of go, this probably isn't enough wilderness yet. <laughs> you know, there's, there's still plenty of people around. There's still plenty of traffic. But Sarah could care less what happens to them at this point. She has become so callous and hard towards them to the lady whom she once considered her closest servant, the one who in her wrong thinking could somehow bring God's promise of a child to them and good enough to, well, sleep with her husband. This is now someone that she just basically wants dead. She's not going to kill directly, but she's casting around and basically, you know, what's going to happen? This is real. This is personal. And this is at-home tragedy. This is, a lot of times I think we read over this and we don't realize, I mean, the depths of, of how awful this situation is. You know, Hebrews 12, 14 and 15 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. And by this, many become defiled. This verse talks about a root of bitterness. Bitterness goes down deep. It grows. It, it latches on to other healthy plants. Um, you know, it latches on and entangles everything in your life, every emotion, every thought, every action. If bitterness is allowed to remain, it will entangle and choke all of those. I remember one of my first experiences weeding, and you'll probably laugh, but I was 22, and I was at my friend's house, and we were weeding his front lawn. He was getting ready to get married and kick us all, cast us out into the wilderness. But I remember pulling these up, and these weeds just kept coming and coming and coming, and, go, and it's like, no matter how much I dug, they were just in there. They were, they were deep-seated. They were entangled in everything where you couldn't even tell the good from the bad. And, you know, we live um, in the Bitterroot Valley. And uh, the Bitterroot uh, plant is a perennial herb. Uh, I'm not going to try and pronounce that from Montanasai family. Uh, but a specific epithet, red viva, means revived or reborn. And this root here in the valley refers to its ability to regenerate from dry and seemingly dead roots that they call it this because it looks dry, it looks dead, but give it some water, give it some time, give it the springtime, and it'll come back to life. It'll revive. It's a bitter root that comes back to life. You know what? Even if bitterness has taken hold of all our relationships and there's bitter consequences throughout our lives, God is able to revive that. He's able to restore and resurrect anything in our lives. But man, isn't it hard? Isn't it difficult if we've allowed bitterness to gain root? So the moment you sense bitterness in your life, Cut it down, chop it out, pluck it up, no matter what the cost, no matter how painful it is, because the longer it sets, the harder it's going to be and the harder your heart is going to get. Even if there's seemingly dead roots, God can restore it. Think about relationships that we thought were dead, that were destroyed, but God is able to revive them in our own families, in our own friends, uh, and even in things that we think are dead now. Man, keep hope alive. Keep praying, keep seeking, like uh, Hebrew says, to pursue peace with all people in holiness. Because guess what? If they're believers and we're believers and there's bitterness there, there's anger there, there's unforgiveness, people are not going to see Jesus. And what's the point of being the church, guys, if, if God is not going to be seen? If we're the church, we need to be loving towards each other. We don't need to be friends. We don't need to hang out all the time. But man, let there not be bitterness. Let there not be anger and envy. Let there be peace and holiness. Because otherwise, it's going to affect everything. We think sometimes in the church that we can keep these disputes between churches underneath the, the rug, sweeping under the rug, but I tell you, it affects entire congregations. I've seen it affect entire areas where bitterness is so deep-rooted that, man, only God can fix it. Only God can root it out. And He will. Let it just be now and not at His second coming. And we believe, Ashley and I, that this is God's plan for the valley. I mean, how could it not be? To bring revival and resurrection to those needing to be brought back to life. To those who are lost and hurting. To those who have been burned by church. To those who don't have um, hope in this life. That they would be given hope. There's plenty of great churches here that God is working with. And uh, we seek and we hope and we pray for unity with them. And peace and holiness with them. Um, to reach people. To not be going from church to church and people bounce around. But really, let's be real believers here. Let's band together. You be your family. We'll be our family. And we'll come together when possible at all points. Just that God might be glorified. And that people might come home uh, to Him.
But we see, you know, in Exodus, you can read it later, in Exodus 15, 22-27, story of Moses and the Israelites in the wilderness, and they reach uh, a spot of bitter water, and God instructs them to cast a tree into the water and to make the bitter into sweet. And not much longer after that, they found a place with water. But that God is able to take those bitter things and then turn them around and make them sweet. But we have to let him do it. And it's not easy. Sometimes we have to uh, humble ourselves and go... Um, deal with the situation. But Sarah could not even think of letting Ishmael get any piece of Abraham's fortune and what should have been Isaac's rightful uh, uh, inheritance. The fact that even though she messed up the promise, she's the one who forced Abraham, so to speak, I'm sure she didn't twist his arm too much, to get into the situation, she's now really bitter at the consequences and she takes it out on Hagar and on Ishmael. I mean, imagine if, if she had dealt with this bitterness and they were able to live somehow in, in some sort of holiness. Maybe it wouldn't be a perfect family, but at least there wouldn't be this bitterness. Imagine how different, I mean, I think we'll see perhaps how different history could have been. She couldn't get over the massive mistake she had made. Uh, she didn't forgive herself, and so she ended up, uh, or allow God to forgive her, and so she ended up taking it out on them. Um, you know, but that didn't mean Ishmael was a mistake, just because they made a mistake. He certainly wasn't, and we'll see that he still has value in God's eyes. Even though Sarah wants him cast out and God allows them to go into the wilderness, God still has plans for Ishmael and still promises that Ishmael would become a nation. And we see that this is obviously very displeasing to Abraham because of his son. I mean, this is still Abraham's son. Just as much his son as Isaac is his son, it's just with someone else. I'm sure his heart loved his boy, even, even if he knew all the time that, man, this was, uh, this was a mistake for me to be with Hagar. But it doesn't mean that he loved his son any different. And I'm sure all these years he was grieved at it, and now it's just, oh man, it's reached ahead. There's nothing I can do. Sarah, this is what Sarah wants, and I know that it's not going to go back. We can't go back to the way it was. And he's grieved. What do I do? How do I, how do I handle this? I can't cast my son out. I can't cast him out. And this word is displeasing or grievous, to tremble or quiver. It almost makes me think of the way maybe God felt at the flood um, when he was grieved that over the over man he knew he had to destroy them. But Abraham was completely shaken over this. His house was no longer at peace. And in a sense, he was being forced to sacrifice the son of his flesh. And he has to sacrifice the son of his flesh before we see in the next little bit, as we read last time, about uh, Isaac the son of faith being sacrificed. We cannot move on to the things of the spirit until we sacrifice the things of the flesh. Like the song says, let me let down, get rid of my old flames that I may burn with your new flame, God. We can't have these two going on here. And in, unfortunately, in a sense for Ishmael, he was just caught in the middle of uh, cosmic history. But I love that the next verse is that, but God said to Abraham, God was paying attention even in all of this. And Abraham was looking to God and in a place to hear his voice. I don't know if Abraham prayed here, if this was just something that was in his heart. He's, you know, because I've been in times when I've been struggling over things and really pining over things and really bothered and grieved by things. And there's times I prayed and received an answer from the Lord. There are times I haven't just prayed. I've just kind of been like just the thoughts in me and that the Lord has ministered to me. So I don't know. But I know that God said to Abraham. So God was paying attention. Abraham was in a place in his faith to hear from the Lord. And it makes me think of uh, Psalm 139, 1 through 4. For the chief musician, a psalm of David, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. That the Lord knows the things that we're grieved about. He knows the thoughts that we have, the things that are going on in our heart. Even before we say them to him, he knows and has an answer. And he always does. For the questions, the doubts, the pains, the joys, and whatever else is going on. But if we have something bothering him, bothering us rather, we need to ask him. We need to ask him and expect an answer. I think sometimes we ask and we don't expect that answer. But you know what? When God does give that answer, he will give peace with you and that situation. You know, that, that answer that God brings will bring peace within you and also, it might take time, but it'll carry out into the situation. But God says that Abraham must do this. That what Sarah is asking for must be done, or what she's demanding. 
There's no healing of the situation in another way. That God makes it clear that Sarah is his wife and Isaac is the son of the promise. And Hagar is not in any way his wife. She's a bondwoman. And that Ishmael is his son, but not of the promise. But I love that God still honors his word to Abraham about his son becoming a great nation. God promised your son will become a great nation. And it applies to Ishmael now too. Although in a sense, I think it's some sort of a technicality because it's his son and God's not going to go back on his word. I also think, you know, it's more out of God's grace. It's more out of God's mercy, especially on Ishmael because it's not Ishmael's fault he is who he is. It's not, you know, again, he didn't choose to be born. But God knew he'd be born and God loved Ishmael. And far too often in society, we blame the children for the things their parents have done and put it on them to carry out. Namely, you know, I think of the, the nth degree of this, but abortion. You know, is it right when a mom is raped? Is it the child's fault? Is that child less valuable because the parents didn't have a valuable relationship and they weren't in love and in fact they were farthest from it? Again, I'm not saying that the practical solutions to this are easy, but there's not lifelong pain and hurt. I mean, there is. There is anyway. But man, why does this child have to be judged for the sins of someone else? It's not our place to bring judgment on the innocent, but on the guilty. So let's think for a minute. You know, we know that Isaac grows up and the nation of Israel comes from his offspring. We know that Ishmael grows up and a lot of the Middle Eastern nations spring from him. And could you imagine how big Israel would have been and how much different history could have been if Abraham and Sarah had just waited? Perhaps there wouldn't be this strife that continues to this day. Perhaps Israel would have taken the entire bit of land that was allotted to them that we see is not allotted to them. Even the, even the disputed borders of Israel now are not anywhere near what the borders are when we look in Scripture. And in fact, one of the things that the Antichrist will do in the last days is broker a peace treaty, which will ultimately fail three and a half years through. It was a failure from the start because he's trying to do a fleshly thing to unite the spiritual offspring and the fleshly offspring. It doesn't work. He tries to unite the offspring of Isaac with the offspring of Ishmael, and this will ultimately usher in the seven years of tribulation. And that's obviously a study for another time. But we see that this, this, these events and actions and decisions and bitterness and unforgiveness and consequences still are playing out today and even till the end of, uh, of the age. But let's go on to verse 14 through 16. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder and gave it to the boy, gave, I'm sorry, and gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. So Abraham obviously had been with uh, Ishmael right there. You know, hey, here's, here's the boy. He's my son, but here you take him. Then she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba and the water and the skin was used up and, the, the, and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat down across her men a distance of about a bow shot. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. Abraham gets up early in the morning to do like Sarah had commanded and God had confirmed with the son of the flesh and the bondwoman. Something again we see him do in the next chapter when it was time to deal with God's instructions for the son of the promise. I don't know if you've ever had a really tough situation keep you up all night or perhaps one that when you do get sleep, you get up and you want to deal with it right away. You know, you can't go do anything else. You need to get this done and taken care of. Um, and whether it's a practical thing or whether it's, a, you know, you need to get up and get to uh, work or you need to get to a meeting or a DMV or something, you know, you need to handle. But I believe God gave Abraham rest with word that night. But I'm sure it was Abraham all could do in the morning. I don't think he took his time getting out of bed or sleeping in, or reading the paper, he obviously got up right away and dealt with it. Said that he gave them bread and water. You know, he definitely cared for them. But what uh, what was that situation like? Can you imagine? You know that tomorrow you have to send them off. You get up in the morning, you've got your son Ishmael. What do you say to him? I love you, son. Do you think he's going to believe that at 16 or 13? You know, he understands what's going on. He, understands, he gets the family dynamic. Just, what sort of things are going on in Ishmael's mind? Hagar is, oh, he's got to give it over to Hagar. He's, you know, you're the, you're the servant. I can get rid of you. Maybe I know we've had a long time relationship and everything, servant and otherwise, but, you know, you're not my son. 
here's my son. Here's some bread, some water. Maybe he snuck the bread and water. Didn't want Sarah to see that. Sarah's obviously nowhere around. She couldn't, didn't want anything to do with it. You know, the sun's maybe just coming up in the wilderness. The cool of the night is starting to burn off. You know how hot it's going to get in the day. Nowhere to go. No one to take care of them. You're rich, you're wealthy, and you can't do anything for them. How do you deal with that? Other than God knowing and trusting in God's promise that Ishmael's going to be a nation. If he's going to be a nation, he's going to survive, but you don't know how easy it's going to be, how hard it's going to be for him. You know it's going to be hard. It's the wilderness. But it says that they wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Um, Beersheba was well of the sevenfold oath, a city at the south of Israel. And we'll see uh, where it gets its name soon after. Uh, but there's a place today, Beersheba, halfway between the Gaza Strip and the Dead Sea, if you can picture that in geography. But it didn't take long for the water to be used up. We're not told how long it is, but the water is used up. You know, in survival lingo, you can go three minutes without air, three hours without shelter in harsh environments, three days without water, three weeks or so without food. Um, but this water was done. And when you're in the wilderness, it's hot. What are you going to do? There's no water there. That, that's why we see later there's a dispute over a well because it's important. Water's a big deal anywhere, let alone in the wilderness. So uh, she placed the boy into the shrubs. He was obviously dehydrated. Perhaps he had heat stroke. He wasn't doing well, and she thought he would die, as she would soon too. She gave him some shade, at least, in the shrub. Can you imagine? She was hopeless. She was helpless. She was alone in the wilderness. Her boy was dying. Her life had come to nothing. All she did was be obedient to her mistress 16, 17 years ago. Although she should have said no, Maybe she had a thing for Abraham. Maybe she didn't. I don't know. It was just allowing it to happen because that's just what you do as a slave. But now the boy, her boy, she loved, was dying. And she couldn't bear to see it. You know, how unbelievably sad and grievous is this situation. She sits a bow shot away. I love this term. Can we bring it back? Can we not switch to the metric system and use terms like bow shot? Uh, it depends on the type of bow, but maybe it was a few hundred yards, maybe less. It depends on the, the technology of the day. Um, but basically, I don't believe she could bear to hear his cries. Whatever it was, it was far enough away for her not to hear them crying, or perhaps for him not to hear her crying as well. Just far enough away. Can you, can you imagine being in a situation where you just you don't want to hear the cries of your child? You can't bear to hear their cries, and you begin to wail and cry yourself. She wept aloud, tears of a mother. I don't know that there's, I'm sure dads cry. I don't know there's tears like tears of a mother, especially for her son, young son, dying for apparently no good reason to her. Reminds me of Hannah praying for a child when she couldn't. She was weeping and sobbing uncontrollably at the altar. Just the, the weight of a mom's heart in these things. But Hagar, you know, I, don't, I don't think, didn't seem to be crying out to God here. And if we look at the situation, she had been burned by the people who had faith in God. Abraham and Sarah claimed to be godly people. God had blessed their lives. It was evident, as we'll see later. But I'm sure at some point she said, what, my boy isn't the son of the promise? Do you think she believed Isaac was really more special than her boy? I don't know. I can only guess. But I don't, I don't see her crying out to God here. That's sad. But God is still faithful. Verse 17 says, And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven, and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. And then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him out of the land of Egypt. Even if Hagar couldn't hear the voice of Ishmael, God did. He heard him right where he was. 
Ishmael didn't have to get up and go anywhere. He was under that shrub, dehydrated, cast out, and God heard him. Maybe Ishmael was just crying for his mom. You know, I think of in Genesis when Cain kills Abel, God says to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to you from the ground. Like God hears everything that goes on. But maybe not. Maybe he was crying to God. Maybe, maybe Ishmael, you know, wanted, you know, it did. I mean, we see that we read here that God was with the boy. It doesn't say God was with Hagar. It says that God was with the boy. That God had a relationship, at least to watch over uh, and bless Ishmael's life, whether Ishmael reciprocated, and that's a different story. But God heard him. Matthew 18.10 says, Take heed that you do not despise, this is Jesus saying, one of these little ones, for I say to you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father, who is heaven, that God cares about children. We see things that go on in the world, we think maybe not, but I tell you, God cares about them. And every one of them has an angel before him in heaven. And God does not take lightly those who hurt children, and there will be great judgment on them in this life and the next. It will come to them. But it says the angel of God calls out to her from heaven. From heaven. Usually we see an angel, they're singing, they've got a trumpet, they're hanging out in a rock in a tomb. They show up and they scare them. <laughs> but in this, we hear an angel calling out to them from heaven. And who is the angel of God? Could this be a theophany, a Christophany here? I believe so. This is Genesis, God and man or God and woman in this story after all. But usually when an angel comes, you know, we get that physical manifestation. You know, just study for another time. Obviously, you see Jesus coming to angels. But this time, straight out of heaven, God speaks to Hagar. Basically, he says to Hagar, no need to cry. Everything's going to be okay. Do not be afraid. And I love how God's message to us is always right to the thing that is most ailing us. She thinks he's going to die. They don't have any water, no survival. She can't deal with it. And God says, what's bothering you? It's going to be okay. I love that God opens her eyes and she sees a well of water. Was the well always there? Were her eyes just so filled with tears and grief? You know how when you get so overwhelmed with anxiety and troubles that you can't even see things in front of you and, and you know, people who have depression or severe problems, they forget how to even like do the dishes or, or get dressed sometimes because their grief is so overpowering. And I wonder if that was the case here where she was just so overwhelmed by the situation with no hope and nothing to do that she just couldn't even see the well that was in front of her, full of water for her. Everything's going to be okay. Why are you crying? You're practically leaning up against this well, Hagar. You know, like uh, Mary in the garden, she's weeping, and she thinks that Jesus is the gardener. She thinks that Jesus is the gardener. You know, or was it a, a spiritual thing? You know, God opens people's eyes. A lot of times it's spiritual. Perhaps this was a spiritual thing as well. I don't know. Um, she just couldn't see it because of the, the distance and her lack of relationship with God. Perhaps it's cliche, but the answer that God has for us is usually simple. It's usually right in front of us. And I think that's why people deny God so often, because number one, they cannot see. They're deceived. Their hearts are hard. Sin blinds us, and God has to open our eyes. But even when he begins to, and he shows that the answer is right in front of you, oh, just repent, come to me, read the Bible, go back to church, forgive people. He was like, oh, no, that can't be it. There's no God. I'm going to go to hours of therapy every week and pay lots of money. Well, how about you just go to an hour of church every week? Spend 15 minutes a day in the Bible for free. We'll give you a Bible if you need one. You know, what's the solution to school shootings? The more gun laws? Is it teachers with guns? Is it cops in school? How about God? How about allowing prayer back in school? How about allowing God back in school? These things didn't happen before we started moving God, before we started telling kids that they were just worthless descendants of apes who have no uh, purpose and no value in this uh, universe that just happens to be. What about the solution to social turmoil, racism, wars? It's God. What's the solution to everything? It's too simple, you say. Well, cry out to God and see if that doesn't change things. But even as people, the church, us believers, barely do it. So why do we expect the world to see it? If we can't get rid of bitterness, if we can't cry out to him to solve our problems, why do we expect the world to, to be magically better? We need to lead the way. Like God said, if my people would what? Humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, will they not hear from heaven? Will they not heal their land? 
I don't know that we really want our land healed if we won't allow the church to be healed, if we won't allow God to heal us and forgive others. But God allowed Hagar to be humbled for her to see him and the provision and promise for her and Ishmael. And I love that it says that God was with the lad. He wasn't with the lad as he was with Isaac, but he was with the lad. He wasn't the son of the promise, but he was still with him. And I believe that God is with the modern Arab nations, but not in the same way as he is with Israel. Israel is obviously his chosen nation, the chosen people uh, that the Messiah came out of. But it doesn't mean that God does not love the Arab nations. That was the whole point of God being with Israel. That was the whole point of Israel becoming a nation, was that God might use them to reach the other nations around them, that the other nations might come to know God through the Jewish people. But instead, the Jews began to hate the Arab, Arab nations around them the, uh, and all that goes on with that. We look throughout the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, a man that God spent a lot of time trying to reach and a lot of scripture pointing to him, Babylonian king. The queen of Sheba, and a major African queen, comes what? To Solomon to find out about his wisdom and perhaps come to faith. Foreign kings in Israel's day, all, all finding time. God wants to reach them all. He just chose Israel to be the ones to carry the torch that these people might come to see the light of truth. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm for Israel, I'm pro-Israel. That doesn't mean that I'm against the other nations that are over there. I'm for them coming to the truth of God. And it's amazing that God is doing a great work over there even these days in the midst of uh, oppressive uh, nations. It's interesting that Ishmael becomes an archer when the term before is that he was a bow shot away. I don't know if there's some play there. Uh, but the kid is a warrior at heart. And do we not see that throughout today? That uh, Ishmael is all about shooting an arrow and hunting in the wilderness and, and providing... You know, he's a good wilderness kid. And it's sad and it's tragic that throughout history, this bitterness has remained and even created a twisted faith because Islam claims Abraham as their father, but instead that who? Ishmael was the favored son, not Isaac. Do we see the consequences here? Do we see the opportunity for the enemy to come and twist God's word for all of history because this bitterness was not dealt with? It's interesting that his mom uh, took a wife for him from Egypt. You know, that's where Abraham and Sarai had gone a few times prior, a uh, place they shouldn't have gone. But she goes back to, she goes to know what she knows and she gets a wife for him. And I'm sure the Egyptian wife didn't bring a knowledge of God into the relationship. And we see uh, them go off and, and, and become other nations. But as quickly as we close here, we're going to see the rest of the chapter, how Beersheba gets its name. So let's go on and read verse 22. It says, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, uh, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I will swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor I had heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And this was probably not the same Abimelech of Genesis 20, but Abimelech was the title of a ruler among the Canaanites, like a king. It's not his actual name. So the same thing like Nebuchadnezzar. But he sees that God had blessed Abraham and was with him. It was obvious to Abimelech that God was with Abraham and blessing him. Abraham's life, his influence, his wealth was all a supernatural blessing and was obvious to those around him. Think of like the favor on Joseph's life. It was obvious God was with Joseph. Pharaoh puts him second in charge. You know that there's wisdom there. Um, and it's evident when God blesses us and people will see it. I know that the only reason I can even hold down a job is because of the Lord. The only reason why I can be any kind of faithful at work is because of the Lord. And, and God has blessed me and given me blessings in life. Uh, with a family and with work and with living that I could never afford on my own. I, could, I don't deserve above any other people. I don't have a college education yet. Uh, God has given me favor. And I know that um, I can't take that favor for granted. Not that God would curse me specifically, but that's, something, that's a big deal to me. I don't take it lightly. But I think Abimelech knew a bit of Abraham's past here, at least Abraham's passive line to get out of things. Um, hasn't really left him behind. Whether Abimelech knew firsthand or not, this, this thing, these consequences in his life are, are keeping up with him. 
Maybe Abimelech even knew Pharaoh, and Pharaoh told him, hey, God is with Abraham. Uh, but man, you know, Abraham lied to me. He's not really a bad guy, but watch out. He might not always tell you the truth, Abimelech. And Abraham used this opportunity to bring up a political land grab dispute between their people. Um, you know, like we said before, a well is obviously a big deal where there isn't much water. But it's pretty honorable that Abraham didn't go to war over it. I'm sure he could have. But he lets Abimelech come to him. And he says, Abimelech, you really want a peace treaty with me? You guys stole my well. And Abimelech plays the, oh, I didn't know until you told me today card. I, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Was he telling the truth? Was he just conceding as part of this deal for the treaty? Was it, was it a, a play for him to get Abraham to agree to a treaty? You know, let me go steal this from him, ask him for a treaty, and I'll give it back to him. So, you know, some shady dealings here. We see the way bargaining and business and politics work uh, in the real world. It's not too big of a stretch here. Um, but we know that Abraham is honorable. We know that a similar thing happened with his and Lot's people. And he told Lot, go, go whichever way you want, and I'll go another way. Abraham was always about having peace with the people around him. But let's go on to verse 28. And Abraham set seven new lambs in the flock by themselves, then Abimelech asked Abraham, what's the meaning of these seven new lambs which you have set by themselves? And he said, you will take uh, these seven new lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. Therefore, he called that place Beersheba because the two of them swore an oath there. Thus, they made a covenant at Beersheba. So Abimelech rose with Phicol, the commander of his army. Again, that's another title, Phicol. And they returned to the land of the Philistines. We see seven new lambs, they're, they're doing this treaty. Abraham's got these lambs. He's given these uh, lambs over to, to Abimelech. And then he has these seven over here. He's got this whole lot, and he keeps seven earmarked over here. Uh, and we know seven is a number of perfection uh, throughout the Bible. But Abimelech's like, Abraham, what's up with these seven over here? Why do you have these, these seven extra over here? Why are these separated? And Aaron goes, I want you to know, and I want everyone else to know that these seven you taking these specific seven are not necessarily part of the peace treaty. They're, they're you agreeing that I dug this well. This is my well. You have no right to it. It's our well out here. Um, and it was a witness for that, that as long as these seven new lambs lived and had babies and, and growed and had wealth um, uh, for Abimelech, that he would know that it came from Abraham, that you don't get the well, you got uh, these uh, lambs. Sorry, I thought I stopped recording. But bear But he gives them uh, Beersheba. This place is called the Well of Sevenfold Oath. Ba means seven, and Sheba means sheep. I'm kidding, but you won't forget it now. That Beersheba was the Well of the Sevenfold Oath because of the seven sheep. So don't forget it. But him and Phicol, the commander, they return to the land of the Philistines. We know these treaties don't last for generations. We see what happens with the Philistines, the Egyptians, and the Israelis. But uh, uh, at least for now, there's peace. And that's a good thing. Let's finish out. Last two verses. Verse 33. Then Abraham planted a, tam a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines many days. So he was still there, and there was peace. But Abraham likes trees that we've seen. We see him earlier praying to the Lord by terrible trees in memory, hanging out by the tree in the Lord of the two angels' visit. And now he plants some. Basically, I was looking up this word to see what type of tree it was, but basically it just means he planted a grove, a garden, a, you know, a place uh, to spend time with God. And I love that picture in Genesis. It's always, always going back to the garden with God. And uh, we see, too, that the Israelites made groves. Uh, they called them the high places where they would worship false gods, and the good kings would come and tear them down, and the bad kings would build more. But Abraham built a place. There wasn't a, there wasn't a tabernacle. There wasn't a temple. There wasn't a church office. But Abraham built a grove, and you know, I always loved that, going out for a hike. Or That's how God reached me 15 years ago, was out hiking, spending time with him. and uh, Well, really spending time in nature, and God would begin to, to minister to me and get my attention. And I would love to have land and plant trees, beautiful wood, shade. There's so much good in, in having that. But I love that Abraham wants this place to spend time with the Lord. And here we see a name of God, the Lord, Jehovah. Yahweh, the everlasting God. The word everlasting, long uh, duration, antiquity, uh, futurity, forever and ever, evermore, perpetual, old, ancient, ancient, time long of past and future, forever and always, uh, indefinite, 
unending future for all eternity. God is the everlasting God. He doesn't run out. He doesn't stop. He always has time. He's always got a minute for you and I. You know, despite all the change, all the family trouble and heartbreak, uh, now having to deal with this political situation as well, Abraham knew that God does not change, that he was everlasting. He always was, he always is, and always will be, the Alpha and the Omega. Do you and I this morning, do we know that God is everlasting? That he's not going to change on us? He's not going to stop loving us no matter what we do or how we're feeling or what we say. He always loves us. Will you and I trust him today? If we haven't yet, will we trust him? If we have trusted him, will we continue today? Will we trust him in the midst of that situation that we haven't trusted him in yet? Or that is hard and we're just barely hanging on? Keep trusting him. He's everlasting. He doesn't run out. He will be with you even if you feel like a son of the flesh. Even if you feel like your whole life has been built on the flesh and not on his promise, guess what? He'll be with you. Let him open your eyes to the fact that he's got a promise for you, a purpose for you. He may not make you into a great nation, but he'll make something great in your life, namely a relationship with him. Father, this morning we just thank you for your grace. Thank you that you were with Abraham and, and Ishmael, that you spoke to Hagar, you spoke to Abraham, that God even spoke to Sarah back in the day. God, we ask that, God, you'd bring forgiveness in our lives for the things we've held against people, the bitterness, the resentment, judgment, whatever we have against family members or friends or in the faith. God, not that we wouldn't be judging in a discerning sense of right and wrong and what to get involved with and what not to get involved with, to make the right choices uh, for political agreements and things like that. But God, when it comes to matters of the heart, to matters of, especially in the household of faith, that God, we would be those who seek and pursue peace and holiness with others, that God, our children would not be affected, that God, your children would not be affected, and that uh, the world might come to see you, God, that you would open the eyes of the blind, open the eyes of the people in, around us, open our eyes to things, but God, would you be seen in this place. We love you, Lord, and trust you for things. Thank you for all you are. And uh, be with us, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen.